Father of goodness, Lord Jesus Christ, the giver of life, Holy Spirit, life manifested even now with us here. How we need you. Oh, blessed Lord, how much we need you. We all come to you today knowing that you give us so many good gifts in life. You give us so much that we, Lord, can't count the blessings. And sometimes, Lord, it's hard to even see the blessings because of the pain. And many of us come here today with that kind of heart, maybe a heavy heart during the holidays because of losses, because of family trouble, conflict, or even just a series of broken events in our lives. And yet, many more of us come today, Lord, even with recognition that though we see your blessings, it's hard to see amidst uh, so many troubles in this world what you are doing. And yet, we sing how we need you. And yet, we pray how we need you. And yet, we know that in our heart of hearts, as we seek your face, Christ is our true Savior. We are not. And how much we need you to hear us. So, as our good Father, we approach you through Christ and in the power of the Spirit, groaning prayers with us, that you would hear us as we pray today, Lord. And first, we give thanks for what you have provided in the blessings of our lives, our jobs, our lifestyles, and the ways you give to us, even relationships, a host of things we sometimes miss. We praise you for these. And we praise you even for what's given to your church today in tithes and offerings. We ask you, Lord, to bless them. And so now we pray, Lord, with silent prayers, little prayers of thanks to you as our God, providing something meaningful to us even today. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, we recognize that many enter this holiday season with physical needs, employment needs, even emotional brokenness. So we pray for the needs of the following, including many with physical needs. Lord, we pray for Lisa Legrand's mother, for Hannah Hovanek, for Blair and Stacy Burke, for Bill McCurda, for Joan Garrett and Sandy Lawson, for Carol Slifer, for Don and Donna Harris. Doug Cunningham. We even pray for those who are in the Philippines struggling, Lord, in the wake of that terrible typhoon. Lord, we long for healing and grace for these as a taste of the hope you grant in Christ. Lord, hear our prayers for these even now. Lord God, in this holiday season, we also lift up the names of those in our lives that are lost, who don't know you, Jesus. We lived there once, but you found us. You redeemed us. You brought us to yourself, and we enjoy you now with hope. So, Lord, we ask that you would bring the gospel to these by name in 
in many ways through us, through others, even through something like the Christmas Eve service. Whatever the case, Lord, we lift up these we love, the lost, by name. Lord, hear our prayers for the lost. Finally, Lord, we ask you to open our hearts and that you would breathe life in us through your word and you would give us hope that's grounded in the greater truths of Scripture that transcend anything we could imagine and hope for. So today, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts upon your word would be stirring for us in the face of this life even a hard world. Hear these prayers in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're in Romans chapter 8. For those of you new to scripture, that's near the back of the Bible. You'll find it's one of those big books, one of the letters of Paul, the first big letter of Paul in particular. I'll start our reading from verse 18, though we will be working out of Romans 8:28 today. Listen to the word of God from the Apostle Paul, to a people struggling with life. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with, uh, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Grass withers and flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, it's one of the, it's one of the hardest. Is everybody okay back there? technical malfunction of a seat at a 50-year-old school. Well, it's one of the hardest human questions to answer. Every religion has wrestled with it. Philosophers of every age have struggled with it. We ask it when we face tragedy, when we face hardship, when we see things like 9-11, the typhoon in the Philippines, and even experience the unexpected, even tragic death of a friend or a family member, 
It is the question that haunts us and every one of us when we have pain. It's the question why. We ask why because we, we want to know why suffering exists. We ask why because we want to know there's me, whether there's meaning in pain. And we want to know where is God in all of that suffering or pain. We ask because we want to know. We want to understand. Because we long to know that there's some kind of purpose to all that has happened that has brought us wounds, pain in this life. And the thing is, we wonder about it, but we often struggle with that question, why? Well, I want to tell you something. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. The believers in the early church lived in a situation in the first century in the Roman Empire that presented them with all kinds of why questions in their daily living, in their interactions with people, yes, even a culture that was set against them. In fact, in, the, in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul kind of piles on this sequence of allusions to the hardships of life and the struggles of life when he, uh, when he starts out in verse 17 and 18 talking about suffering. There he's talking about the suffering that the Christians had been through in Rome as a result of oppression. Remember, the Christians were resisting their time. Christianity was not popular. It was an intimidating thing to the Roman Empire because of its fast growth. And as a result, they were seeking to suppress it in all kinds of ways in how people lived and what people did for a living and how they interacted with one another. In fact, very often they would throw out uh, accusations about the Christians in that time and call them things like cannibals because they ate and drank of the body and blood of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Symbolically, of course, as we know, yet they would be accused of that in that time. Not only that, as if that wasn't enough, in verse 23 of our text, Paul talks about how creation even groans itself. And Christians groan because you look at life and experience life and it's not the way it's supposed to be. We all have this ache inside like, ooh, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. We look at things like uh, nature groaning with, with uh, dangerous storms like Katrina, violent tornadoes that kill. Men groan even with the futility of how we try to do things in this life, projects, actions, and they just don't work the way we expected to. Or when they even work, they start to not work because things break. Things break even in the more personal sense for all of us when disease comes into our lives. Things like cancer. Death comes into our lives through sometimes tragedy that's unexplainable. And we clearly know in our heart of hearts this is not the way it's supposed to be. Now the interesting thing is that Christians and non-Christians alike agree on this. We can all say cancer is not right. Death is not right in the way it's supposed to be. But then Paul brings it home in verse 26 for all human beings when he talks about weakness. How we don't have within us the power to actually fix things. Though we make every effort to, we are often faced with our limitations and inabilities to overcome or even understand. 
one after another, Paul's bringing up these relentless lists of struggles that bring us to the big question of why. Why? Why? But then in our text today, in verse 828, he shifts the conversation radically to a decisive verse. And Romans 8.28 says this amazing thing to us. It says, and, meaning with all the sufferings in this world, it's not you're going to suffer, period. But, and, all things we know work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In the midst of all kinds of difficult issues that stirs up the why, Paul says, we know. And we know in light of all this stuff. We can be confident. We understand. We get it. That God is at work in all of this. How can he say we know? I mean, how can anybody say with some kind of confidence in the face of real pain and hardship, things that aren't easily explainable, we know? Well, the answer comes for him from Scripture. From the truth of God speaking into history through the prophets and the apostles. That God is at work in all of these things. That God is working even when in things we just don't quite understand. Now, before I get much further in this, i got to say, I realize there may be some folks here today who are going, Whoa, we're talking about suffering today. That's a heavy subject. And I'll admit, yes, it is. That's where we are in the text. And maybe you're in a great time of life where you're enjoying the blessings of life. You're enjoying friends and family. Things are going well for you. Amen. We want that for you. I want that for you. I love those times as well. But I would suggest that of all of us here, there is probably even a greater majority of people who walk in the door today with that nagging question of why. I know there are many days that I do. And that nagging question of why, because something about life does not seem the way it's supposed to be. It hurts. And you're not real sure what's going on in God's strange plan. I think Steve Brown is right, the PCA author and radio host and, and pastor. When he said to me one time, he said, personally, he said, you know, Dean, 80% of the people in your congregation are probably hurting that day. That's often my assumption when I talk with you because I know many of the times I show up here today, I'm hurting. So Jesus speaks into this so that we can say we know that there is a greater truth in the midst of all of our hardships. But whatever the case, every human being faces pain and difficulty, even tragedy at some point. Wherever you are today, it would be good to prepare your heart for that day when it comes. For we know there is a grander truth that makes sense of everything, even when we're not seeing it clearly. So what is it we need to know in the face of the wise of suffering? Well, verse 28 tells us a basic truth. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. When Paul says all things, he's talking about everything. Everything in creation, in history. Everything from atoms to subatomic particles, like the uh, uh, Boson-Higgson uh, particle. 
to our DNA strands, to weather systems, to comets flying through our solar system, giving us that sense of wonder at the universe we live in. All things includes history, human history, from Adam and Eve to economic movements, yes, the recession too, to the rise and fall of nations. Yes, all things even includes wars. And dare I say it, all things includes our personal circumstances, our stories from birth to the grave, the good times, the hard times, the relationships, the impact we make and the impact that people make on us. All things encompasses all of these things and beyond. And one of the problems that we struggle with in this language of all things being encompassed is that we've forgotten the great truth about creation, history, and our personal circumstance. And it's this, that we are not products of random chance. All things, according to Paul, presupposes something we don't talk about that much anymore, God's providence. That God is in control and is governing everything that happens. Now, you want to know what the popular idea of all things is in our time. It's that of luck. We say good luck to one another, usually to wish someone well. And that's well-intentioned, no doubt. No doubt at all. But unwittingly, we may be saying something we don't realize. We're saying that all things are really a matter of chance. Hope things work out. Because when it comes to luck, well, you just don't know. We Christians, however, have a very different biblical view of all that happens in life. We don't say good luck. We say God bless. And here's why. We believe two distinct truths that are working together in harmony all throughout Scripture. And it's these two truths that help us understand what's going on in life around us. The first is this. God is absolutely sovereign over everything that happens. Everything. And the second truth is equally true throughout Scripture. Man is responsible for his actions and, yes, even his own sin. Both tell us that this world is not a place of random chance or luck. Both tell us that we belong in a world of purpose. It's going somewhere. And not only that, both are simultaneously true. And by the way, if you want to understand kind of all the strange things that happen in Scripture and the, even what seems to be discontinuities, what you have to realize is these two things are true at the exact same time. How that works, I don't know. It's a lot like the Trinity. How is God one and three? I don't know. Both of these are simultaneously true in attention. If you want a, a verse that will help you understand that truth, read Philippians 2, I believe it's 13. It says this, 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Did you hear that? Work out your salvation. Be responsible in your walk with Christ. But at the same time, know it is God who is at work in you to will and to do. Both are simultaneously true. God is sovereign and we are responsible. But here's the thing. You've got to realize there's one that comes first. God is sovereign. Is always first. He's always the first mover. And that's true not only of all that happens in life, but even our sin and our consequences of sin. Even of other sin and the darkness of men. He's not responsible for it, but he is sovereign over it. How does that work? Don't know. It's attention in Scripture. So, here's the challenge for us. We need to move away from the model of good luck to a model of God who is sovereign, bless you and your responsibilities. If you can do this and see history and all that happens in a different way through God bless, you can understand more how all things works out in our lives. Your history and all things like this are a lot like a tapestry. The old language of a tapestry is a beautiful curtain. And here, I don't know how beautiful it is, but this is the Sun Valley curtain. And you can see that this is a one big thing. You can see how big it is, right? But what it's made of is small strands of fiber that are woven together. And very often when you look at a tapestry, you can see one strand here or one strand there. But that is a part of a larger whole that is woven together, even in history. That's the imagery of Scripture and how we understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility working out in this life is we have all of history in a grand tapestry and you and I only see one or two strands All of it is woven together. Sometimes we get preoccupied with our strands because it's hard. But that is what God is doing, weaving it all together so that it has meaning in life. You and I are a part of that meaning, a, a part of that weaving, rather. And we need the humility to admit we don't see the whole tapestry. We need the humility to say, We don't see the whole, though we can see parts that God reveals to us. Now, that brings us to a larger question that follows up in our verse as well. What kind of tapestry will all things in providence become? What's the quality of that? Well, Paul tells us in the end of this sentence, all things work together for good. For good. This is an ultimate good. It's a true good. Good as God defines it. It isn't what necessarily what we consider good. Now, I'll give you an example. A good for me personally is comfort. I want comfort. I want to be happy. I want to be settled and everything to work out okay in relationships, in work, in ministry, in church. But sometimes we raise a good thing like comfort or even happiness to a higher level of significance than it should be and make it an ultimate thing. 
I would suggest to you that the good is talking about here is all about the good of God. That God has a grand plan that has a final and ultimate good to it. And that final and ultimate good is his glory, is his honor. That we are preoccupied with him and his goodness and how beautiful and glorious he is in the work he is doing in history through his sovereign hand, even working through men's responsible actions. You see, we sometimes forget that good takes forms we don't expect. Let me give you another example. For the longest time in my life, even in my Christian life, I thought conflict equals bad. Conflict by its very nature is evil. Now, many of you are thinking, well, of course, conflict's not a good thing, is it? Well, actually, conflict can be destructive, and there indeed it is an evil thing when it breaks relationship, when it hurts people. But there is such a thing as constructive conflict. In fact, that's one of the most freeing things I learned about the gospel is that even Jesus engaged in conflict to be a redemptive influence in people's lives. There is such a thing as redemptive conflict. And for those who are in marriages where your whole goal in life is to not get in conflict, repent of your idol. Now, I'm not saying go pick a fight with your spouse after church today. What I'm saying is there is a way to create or to promote truth that will stir things up. And yes, even conflict. But that can always be a redeeming thing in your life. If you want to know more about this, we have people uh, in our church, in our care team, team who can help you think about this. Some really godly and wise people who understand the nature of godly conflict. But I'm trying to encourage you. There's a way where God's providence is a little unexpected. So, this brings us to another large question. If given all of these issues, that sometimes God's providence and God's work takes unexpected turns... That brings the real question that we all really struggle with. (laughs) What about evil? What about evil? One looks at things like 9-11, the death of a child, cancer, natural disasters, tragedies of all kinds. And how can you not think, how does that work for good? Well, this is probably the atheist's number one complaint against God in our time. The atheist's complaint goes something like this in three simple points. In what's called a syllogism in philosophy, it goes like this. God is supposed to be all-powerful, so he can prevent evil. And then second, God is supposed to be all-good, so he should want to prevent evil. But the problem is evil exists. Therefore, God cannot either be good or he can't be powerful or maybe he just doesn't even exist. That is the logic of a great many atheists in our time. Here would be our response. The first is a question. The second is a statement. And the first question goes like this. 
If you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, or you're really struggling with the whole concept of God at all, where do you get your idea of good and evil? Does your idea of good and evil come from something you made up? Or an assumed system of morality? And where does that system of morality come from? Where do your assumptions come from, is what I would ask. Second, we would respond with another point. And this point, that point with this, is this, is the statement in Romans 8.28. God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In other words, God has a sovereign purpose. And that working out of his purpose is according to his plan. And ooh, this is the hard one for me, his timing. So that you've got to understand there might be a purpose in suffering in the greater plan. Of course, big and difficult questions come out of this. What is the purpose of suffering in the plan? And I've got two, or really two or three answers to this. Hang with me. The first answer is the short-term view of suffering. Here's the answer to what do we do about suffering in the short-term view. And I'm going to give you the most profound theological thought ever done in history. Are you ready? I don't know. I can't pretend to know why God allows certain things to happen in history in his sovereign plan. I don't know. Short term. But there is another thing I want to address that often comes up with suffering in our time. Many, even in this room, when you go through suffering, the first thought that goes through your head is, I must have done something wrong and God is getting me. That is what we call penance. And we don't believe in that. Do not think that just because you are suffering, you have sinned and God is getting you. There's plenty of suffering that shows up in Scripture with David, with, with Joseph, with a whole host of others, where that suffering occurred because of the sinfulness of men even in the innocence of others. And Jesus Christ dying on the cross is the perfect example of that. He went to the cross and died, but it wasn't because of his sin. No, you should remember there is a kind of suffering that occurs where there is no real, no idea why God gives it, why God allows it. I will say this. There is suffering that occurs because of sin, too, as consequences of it. So if you're really trying to discern, is God getting me uh, because of my sin? Well, let's ask the question. Well, did you sin? And then there are automatic consequences to it. Can you make a connection? For example, if you have an affair and your life blows up and your family blows up, are you going to sit there and say, why is this happening to me? <laughs> That's what happens. Nevertheless, for those who live with this ache, God is getting me because of my sin, and you can't identify the sin, maybe that's not it. The suffering doesn't come for that reason. Suffering, as C.S. Lewis says, is in whatever case it shows up, God's megaphone in our lives. 
Let me put it for the young people. You ready for this? It's God's subwoofer. In the back trunk. Boom, boom, boom. Getting our attention to how we understand life and Him in particular. Sometimes this is hard to believe. All that I've just told you. Sometimes we feel like God is punishing us with pain when in fact he may be saving us and growing us and we don't realize it. Some years back, a Norfolk Southern train was on the tracks in Indiana. It was going about 24 miles an hour. And suddenly the conductor, Robert Moore, saw an object on the track a few hundred yards away. He and uh, the other conductor, Rod Lindley, thought it was a dog. And as they got closer, Moore screamed. That's not a dog. That's a baby on the track. It was 19-month-old Emily Marshall who had wandered onto the track. Lindley hit the brakes, but you know trains, they don't stop immediately. They keep moving. Moore bolted out of the door and raced along the ledge of the engine to the front of the engine. And he realized there was no time to jump down the track and get her. He had to hang from the front grill of the engine. And as that train came up on Emily, standing on the track, he took his leg and he literally pushed her out of the way off the track. She fell onto the rocks. You could tell it was not a pretty fall. But she was safe. It was, as one author calls it, a loving kick. When you go through hardship, maybe, just maybe, God is kicking you off the track to save your life. Maybe, just maybe, God is doing that so you will know Him as the one true Savior. God's loving kick changes everything. And I would suggest this is our greatest argument as Christians as to the purpose. I'll say the long view purpose of suffering. And it even addresses the atheist complaint. God allows suffering to show himself, to redeem in powerful ways that you and I can't conceive in our small created minds. Redemption is his goal in suffering. And the best example of this in scripture is Joseph. You heard Howard talk about him earlier, but you remember his story. Joseph grew up as the favored son of the patriarch Jacob. He got the coat of many colors. He was the main man among the boys. Yet his brothers hated him for it. They were jealous. Not only were they jealous, they were envious, which is worse. And what they do about this, they sold him into slavery at the tender age of 17. And as, after they did that, he ended up in slavery in Egypt, of all places. I mean, think about that for a second. This would be akin to the girls who are kidnapped, even in America, and put into the sex slave trade. It's that kind of betrayal, except this is worse. This is family. Joseph ends up in Egypt overseeing the home of a military commander, 
Potiphar, only to have Potiphar's wife hitting on him and making the moves. He denies her, and boom, how is he rewarded? She accuses him of making moves on her anyway, and Potiphar has him thrown in jail. What is his reward for being holy? He's thrown in jail. And he's not just thrown in jail for a few months. Thirteen years. Till he was 30 years old. While he's in jail, God blesses him. He blesses him with the gift of interpreting dreams. And his reputation gets out to even Pharaoh, of all people, the king of Egypt. And he eventually makes his way into Pharaoh's court to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And in the process, saves an entire nation of a pending famine. And gives, I mean, he's so good, he gives uh, Pharaoh, the, even the plan on how to handle it. Well, Pharaoh falls in love with him, puts him on his cabinet. Ten years later, at around age 40, Joseph is Pharaoh's right-hand man. And right around this time, as the famine is at its peak, Joseph's brothers show up. Looking for food because the famine had taken over in Canaan. This is 23 years after they had sold him into slavery and years and years of heartache and struggle that Joseph had been through because of them. And they came to Joseph and they didn't know who he was. <laughs> so Joseph recognizes them and sends them back home. He gives them a series of tests. And finally they return and he reveals himself. And as soon as he reveals himself, like Howard said, and especially after Jacob dies while they're in Egypt... They get scared. Oh, no. We put him into slavery. He's going to kill us now. Let me ask you something. Let's say you had a family member who sold you into slavery, maybe loaded you down with a lot of financial debt that you had to take because of their error. All right, let's do that one. Let's say also that somehow you get accused of making a hit on the boss at work. You lose your job. It goes to court. You are actually found unjustly to be guilty of the crime. You have to do time, and you get out of jail, and you're innocent all along the way. How would you feel about the people who sold you out and you ended up in jail? How would you feel? Well, the extraordinary thing is this man who spent so much time in injustice in jail says it plainly to his brothers. Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? As for you, listen to this, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be alive. Folks, there's only one way you can say that. It's faith. Faith. The ability to see something bigger than us in the midst of a painful moment, even a painful reunion for jo Joseph, to see that God has been at work in a way that you did not expect or predict. That's the kind of faith that Paul has been calling us to, to a God so big that he can make dead things live. A God so big that he can save his enemies from their sin by bleeding on the cross with him for them. 
This is the vision that Joseph got a taste of and that we can live with. That there's somebody bigger than us and a story bigger than us. And our stories, yes, even our pain, dare I say it, even our sin is being woven together in the story. So there is one who gets glory. And many are saved. This is the hope we have in pain and suffering. And is the hope we have when we rely on Christ. And so we ask the question. Who are the people affected by this very promise from Scripture? And the answer is right in our text. Those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Those who love God, that is, those who have been loved by God and have received the grace and love of God so that they're able to actually give it back to God and give it to other people. Those who've been called, the Holy Spirit working in their lives, listening to the gospel, so they respond By following Jesus in faith. Those are the ones who are affected by this. And so I ask us, as a final applications for these grand truths, where do you land with that? Are you someone who is exploring Christianity and you're not real clear on what your future is going to be and where this is all going? I ask you, what is your plan? Are you just going to live for today? And what about when suffering comes? Where do you go? Do you get mad? Well, sometimes anger is appropriate, but you got to move past it. Do you get demanding? Do you go to despair? This verse, this entire word and Christ it points to, tells us that we can look to someone far beyond us, even in the midst of pain. Call on Christ to be your one and only Savior. If He's the only living Savior in history, maybe He's worth relying on, even in the face of death. Let me speak to Christians. Christians who are here today. As Christians who look to God, and look to his Christ, I want to remind you that God has been working out your pain in your life for a larger reason, for a larger purpose. You believed, but God's not done. You have struggled and suffered, but God is calling you to know him anew and to know him afresh. And you know why he's doing that? I'll leave it to my wife to give me a fabulous illustration for this. This morning, even, as we were praying together. He wants you to be a grand oak for his glory, not a pumpkin. It's in suffering that we grow. It's our P90X, our insanity workout to follow God. And it grows us strong for the long run so we may persevere. But many want to just be pumpkins that grow really fast and look really cool. You can even make smiley faces on them, but they're hollow. And with a little bit of weather and hardship, they wither. Jesus is calling you to be an oak, and he's a redeeming suffering in your life to make you bigger, stronger, 
reflecting his glory in Christ's likeness even more. Third, I speak to believers who long for assurance. This verse is meant to remind us that there is a bigger plan than we see. We are called to hope in the Lord and his purpose. If you want assurance in hard times, you know how you handle that? You do what David does in the Psalms. Psalm 131. Lord, uh, I do not occupy myself with things far beyond me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. I want to be still and know that you are God. I want to dwell on the promise and the historic account of Scripture and consider what you have done in history and even consider that you're big enough to do that for me in my hardship. In your time, in your place, but among us who have noisy souls, calm your soul before the Lord. Finally, for those of us who invest our lives in people, and there are many here who give so much to one another, this is a loving congregation. Most of you know this uh, intuitively, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> when you see this verse, be careful how you use it. I realize that even today as I preach on this verse and talk about these grand things, some of you are still struggling to believe it. And that's okay. That's okay. When you meet someone who is struggling, don't pull this verse out too fast. I mean, even Jesus, when he met the people who were mourning Lazarus' death, wept. He didn't preach at them. He didn't tell them, I'm going to resurrect them. What's your problem? No, nah, he wept with them. Weep with those who weep. And then remind them in due time and at the right time with wisdom, the truth that God, all things work for good. That's what we're meant to do. In conclusion, today is one of those days where I didn't want to be here. Where I am weary, heavy laden. My life has been hard in recent months with a lot of demands and stresses. You, a lot of you who know me know that. But I got to tell you, this verse gave me hope. It gave me hope because I can show up here today and I don't have to perform for you. I just need to tell you the truth that I know. And God and his spirit will work in you according to his good pleasure. Indeed, Peter Kreft gives us an illustration to illustrate how even uh, God works among us. When we're in pain and when we think God is actually against us, he's really for us. Imagine if you will. Imagine if you will that there is a bear caught in a trap in the woods. And there's a hunter nearby. And that hunter sees the bear in pain, crying out in the bear trap. And as he sees it, he has compassion. And he wants to help the bear get out of the trap and escape and live a rich, full life. So as he approaches the bear, he's coming calmly and he's wanting to gain the confidence of the bear. But the bear sees the hunter and he's in pain. So what does he do? He growls at him. He gets angry at him. It's like saying, if you come any closer, I'll bite your head off, literally. The hunter knows, well, I'm not going to be able to approach him this way. 
I'll pull out a tranquilizer dart and I'll shoot him. Boop. The bear sees the tranquilizer dart coming and saying, the man's attacking me. But instead, he calms down. And then the bear notices that the hunter comes over and he grabs his paw and he has to push it down into the trap to actually release the mechanism. And the bear in his weary state and his, uh, uh, thinks that the, that the hunter is actually being mean to him again. But in point of fact, the hunter's trying to release him. And he's finally released. And he's free. Too many times when hard things come our way, we are like that bear caught in a trap. And we think that God is actually trying to hurt us when maybe he's really trying to save us yet again. For his glory, for a larger good, for our good. Would you dare to trust him today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today. And we know there are a lot of people who are here today who are struggling in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. There are many of us who are enjoying life and are thankful that you're given a good season. Either way, I pray for all of us that you prepare us to actually see you as the hunter looking out for our good. The Lord who wants to free us. The Lord who wants to take us to different places with you. Open our hearts, Lord, to the grand plan, the long view. We don't understand the short view. It doesn't make sense sometimes, Lord. But give us the hope that you are good and you have a good waiting for us that is full of you and full of life for us. Thank you for that gift in Christ. And it's through him we pray. Amen. Thanks, bro. Right now, we're going to sing our final song together, and we're going to take up an offering. As a part of how we respond to people in need, we're going to take up a, an offering for the people of the Philippines that we're going to give along with the rest of the PCA to care for the needs of people there through God's church. So let me invite you as we stand and sing together to consider giving as the ushers come forward.